This is Football Social Daily, the Premier League podcast. Welcome to another episode of Football Social Daily, the award-winning Premier League podcast. Be sure to hit the follow on your preferred listening platform now so you can have all the latest shows dropped right into your feed. On today's episode is another weekly dose of VAR audio, which is now released more regularly than your favourite Netflix series. This time it's the Manchester United and Newcastle United goals, or no goals, that are in question. And talking of TV series, does anyone remember Hey Arnold? Well, today is by Arnold as the Manchester United CEO steps down from his role after just a year in the position as Jim Ratcliffe's team begins a major reshuffle at the club. And there's more drama at the Rams, and I'm not talking about Derby County, but Aaron Ramsdale, whose dad has spoken out yet again. I can't really count the amount of times he's spoken out, and we'll tell you exactly what's been said. I'm Joel Tudor and I'm joined by just Marley Anderson today as I think Niall's in the arse end of Europe somewhere I believe. How are we doing Marley? It's different hearing you uh, introduce the podcast and channel your inner Niall. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to, you have to kind of get the decibels out. I'm not used to speaking in such a high pitched tone and now I'm going to go down to my typical usual self. (laughs) But um, You've definitely got a presenting voice, it's very different to your normal uh, normal voice. I'd pay to see you on ITV News or something like that. Yeah, I know. I, I hate the fact that you have to kind of bring in a new voice just for the introduction and then you can just get back into the basic normal football talk. <laughs> but let's get back to the football talk. First of all, the VAR segment, of course, it feels like we've got a weekly segment of this every single week. There's been more VAR audio released after some pretty controversial calls over the last couple of weeks, as always. The two we're going to talk about in question is Scott McTominay's goal, which was ruled out against Fulham. And obviously your team, Anthony Gordon's goal against Arsenal, which nearly made Mikel Arteta implode in St. James's Park. So for the McTominay one, here's a quick clip of just what went on in the VAR room and how they came to that decision. Take a listen. That's up on the shoulder now. Okay, that's fine. I'm happy with one line. You can just lock one line in. Okay, sure. I'm comfortable going to clearly onside with one line. And you can play it through for me again. Is there any impact from five on the 19 as this ball comes over? Maguire attempts to play the ball. Just go yeah, back Yeah, any again impact for me. on the 19's ability to... to play the ball. Just go back yeah. to the offside position for me. Offside position, yeah. Just to check Harry Maguire. So you, do you want to draw offside lines again? Yes, please. Harry Maguire, sure. Yeah. So Maguire attempts to play the ball. Brooksy now just checking Harry Maguire. Okay. So happy That's there it. on the defender. Cool. Left shoulder. Possible impact, mate. Sorry, sorry. Left shoulder. Yes, possible impact, Harry Maguire. Okay, yeah, that's on the shoulder. Yep, so Harry Maguire lines. will be in an offside position. Now we'll just check to see the consequence of the attempt to play. So do, you want, do you want to send these lines now? Lock it in. Okay, yeah. So, rolling so Harry Maguire's now. offside. Now we just need another angle there. So f- for me, yeah, that's attempting. Um, attempting to play with impact for, the ball, for me. And he's offside. Yeah. It doesn't touch the ball, so it'll be a subjective he decision. Ball, he does impact a, for me on the ability yeah, of the so other opponent. It'll be a subjective decision, so it'll be an on-field review. I agree. So after listening to that, for me, there was a little less commotion compared to the other clips that we've heard, especially that Tottenham versus Liverpool one. In the end, I think it was the correct decision when they eventually came to it. But they said subjective offside, which is what the VAR assistant said. What do you make of that? Because when I first heard, when I first heard it, when I was actually watching the game, I was thinking, how can an offside be subjective? But then obviously when you actually watch the clip, you can kind of gain a gist of whether Maguire is interfering with play or he's not interfering with play. What do you make of that? I think the decision's right, me. I think it's not hard to quickly establish whether X player is offside or or not. 
Um, I think it's who is it at the bottom? Of, is it Garnacho at the bottom of the screen? Yeah, Garnacho is running at the back post. It across to McTominay, so he's not offside, and you can you can quickly establish that. You can quickly establish ag- again whether Maguire is offside because it's obvious he is once you draw the the lines, and even to the naked eye you can see that anyway. But yeah, for me, like this is the one time you know when people say, and we've said in the past, um, the offsides can be black and white. This is the one little loophole where it can't, <laughs> because is yeah. some is somebody interfering with play? But I think that's pretty obvious to um, to to work out because for me, Maguire is prevent. Like I always think, if the person is there, and you're asking whether they're interfering um, in play or not, yeah. if you remove that player completely and you just pretend he wasn't there. How was the defender going to act? Is he going to act in the same way? And I don't think it's I don't think it's really a conversation that the defender would have acted differently had Harry Maguire not been running alongside him because Maguire makes a play for the ball. Um, he doesn't get it. Garnacho does get it. And therefore, the goal is disallowed. For me, it's a pretty simple one. I'm still seeing Man United fans saying, oh, it's all, it's all corrupt, it's all knackered and the whole system's wrong. It's not wrong. It just went against you. If Maguire doesn't stretch his foot out for the ball, that goal stands. It's as simple as that. Because then, if he doesn't, if he doesn't stretch, it's just two defenders running towards to try and get the ball. But because he makes a play for it, he interferes with play. It's very simple, I think, in my opinion. Yeah, I think in the same way in which VAR is almost willing to try and find an error, fans are almost willing to hope that VAR has made a wrong decision just so everyone can jump on the decision. But I think one thing that annoys me about this decision is not the actual game and the decision itself. It's this season we've seen very similar circumstances. For example, the Akanji one, the Manchester City one, I believe it was against Fulham, if I'm not mistaken, where he literally is in the line of the goalkeeper. He almost attempts to take the ball. It goes in. And yet in that game, I saw no clip of the referee getting told, okay, it's a subjective offside, go and have a look at the screen and then you tell us if it's the right decision or not. They took it within their hands to say, we think the goal's clear. So is have we got a problem with consistency in implementing the rules rather than anything else? I don't think many situations are, are the same. Like, I don't think, I don't see that interfering with play because um, he's not, it's, it's, he's not interfering with play, he's interfering with the, the line of the goalkeeper, Bernd Leno, and that's a different situation because then you you have to have a camera. You almost have to have a point of view camera on the on the goalkeeper and say like, what can you see? Like you know, you get the virtual reality things where you put the headset on now and you can you can go into the eyes of a player almost. You can you can see well, like when we see Jamie Carragher in the Sky Studio with his VAR yeah, headset yeah. on, literally well, on the pitch. A few years ago. It's on. It's on our YouTube channel. It's before you started with us, we went down to. There's a company in Manchester called Resil, who literally have that technology of you can go into the eyes and see the point of view of any player on the pitch in any situation. It's it's incredible. He, the guy um, who runs it put us in a situation yes. where we were David De Gea at a corner, um, and the ball the the ball whipped in. And it went over his head, like he couldn't, uh, he couldn't reach it. And as he whips round, you know, there's a collision at the back post, and it goes in the net. And it's like you've got to 
you've got to have the camera angle. If you're not going to use that technology, you have to have the camera angle ready. And it's hard to see. And they, they messed up that Akanji one because he was clearly um, impeding the goalkeeper. It was it was an obvious decision. But for this one, it was it was different because Maguire's you know actively trying to get the ball and affecting the defender. I would have loved to have seen you be David De Gea during a penalty. <laughs> well, I'd just be stood there going, oh, I've missed another one. <laughs> As all 11 Villarreal penalties went past him that night, yeah. Gosh, that would have been a, a real movie to watch in the VAR headset. Yeah. I think one of the issues as well with the decision, the Maguire decision, is that we've all been kind of drummed into our ears. It needs to be clear and obvious. VAR's brought in to clear up any clear and obvious errors. And this took almost four minutes to come to the conclusion that Maguire's interfered with play. So are we at a stage now, I think I've realised, where every goal is going to have to be checked? Because if no goal is checked and it's the wrong decision or they found something later on in the build-up, can you imagine the outcry of saying, you've got VAR, you should have checked it, you've got the technology to go and see exactly what happened. So we're literally at a stage now where it's started off as we want to bring in VAR to clear up any errors that are absolutely obvious, for example, like the Lampard one uh, in the World Cup kind of thing, or are we literally at a stage now where you, we have to because the technology's there? Yeah, well, that that is for me. It's an empty... Um, phrase isn't it clear and obvious because what is clear and obvious an error is an error it, it yeah. doesn't it doesn't matter um, clear and obvious errors rule out goals so therefore every goal has to be checked and it is checked and that's what we, why we're seeing it you know players reluctant to celebrate players celebrating twice or you know going mental <laughs> at the referee if it's disallowed after a five minute review or whatever but for me the, the decision isn't See. I'm not bothered about the time it takes, really, because I'd rather see a right decision than a wrong decision, because ultimately you can wait five minutes if it takes that long. Most of them don't, we, we all, but we always focus on the ones that do take longer. Whereas I'd be less comfortable missing out on Champions League football or a league title by two points or, or you know, one point because of a certain decision where, you know, 70 decisions have gone, have been correct over the course of the season but that 71st one that one was wrong and therefore you miss out on millions of pounds I mean it's, I think it's 1.2 million pound per place in the Premier League so there's every yeah. decision's costing you a million quid in my opinion can you wait five minutes yeah you can because we've got this technology it goes back to my earlier point of like from weeks and weeks ago of what are you expecting to hear you're only like you're, you're actually hearing four or five people in doing a very good process of, if you check this, I don't think that he's interfering with play or whatever it may be. You're not hearing five guys in a cult, in a, in a room going, it's Man United to let's screw him over and disallow this goal because it's funny and Ten Hag might get sacked. You're never going to hear that. If you think yeah. that's what goes on in the VAR room, pick another spot because or go and get your tin hat and go to Matt Letizia's house and have a little rally because you are not <laughs> going to get... It's not corrupt nothing's corrupt things go against yeah. you but as long as they can put some sort of logic to it which they always can as we've proved in this these three or four decisions that are being released it's there it's clear for them to see you can see why they came to the process of of the the decision yeah i think even when you look at that goal as well pre-var that goal would have been given but how on earth at the speed in which the game is being played 
is a team of three officials meant to even spot that when there's so much going on? That's that's why in this circumstance, I know we're all really quick to berate VAR, but I feel like in that circumstance, for example, a, um, a, a free kick or a corner where there's so much commotion going on, you need about 10 referees to look at every single player to even spot any kind of error. But let's move on from the Man United one. Let's go to the Newcastle United one. Here's a quick clip of the VAR audio for that decision. Have a listen. So, Stu, can you have a look at this as well before we go check the goal? For me, I've got no conclusive evidence that, no. that, ball, that that ball is out. No, I, no I agree. He said, no, I, he said not a goal. Too, wait a minute. No, too, I was going to say, you can't go on that angle, no, although no, no, it no, looks out, you've got the curvature of the, the, the ball. Just one second then. So, go two frames forward, the ball is already... So, run that through, please. Right, now you've got the challenge on the back post. Yeah, so I'm going to check that. So, run, running that through, please. So, yep. looking for an offside position, first of all. No offside position. I'm now needing to check a potential foul on Gabriel so have you got high behind for me please Stu we've cleared the uh, ball staying in we're now checking for the back post challenge mate. from the other end which might be better yeah, thank you. Could be a I, don't, well. I don't see a specific foul on Gabriel I see two hands on his back but I don't see anything of a push that, that warrants him flying forward like that so when I watch this clip interestingly the referee says and the thing that I spotted first and foremost was that he said the ask on the pitch is that the ball is out of play so that was the number one first thing and then when they analysed it, they looked at their only angle of it and said, there's no conclusive evidence that the ball is out of play, uh, the VAR assistant said. So would you agree that that was correct? Because in my opinion, I thought that was very fair. They literally brought up the only video shot that they had and it wasn't conclusive, so you can't rule it out. Yeah, and I thought the one thing that I took from it, from, from the ball potentially going out in the corner, was how quickly they, they wrapped that up. And they, they looked at it once and went, I can't prove that's out. You know, we've got a number one on the field. You've got to let it run because you, you know, you're at the wrong angle as a referee. So you can't just say that's out because you can't stop the game there. So, you know, and then if you've got no proof, otherwise you have to you have to allow it. And then you, then you get into the realms of of flipping physics, don't you? Of, of the ball is out from this angle and the ball is not out from if you look above it and stuff like that. We haven't we haven't got the technology to prove that it was out, so therefore it's in. So then it comes on to the next the next decision which was was it a foul and then the third decision of whether it was offside. So Yeah, I was just gonna move on to that foul on Gabrielle. He said I don't see a specific foul on Gabrielle but I see two hands but nothing that warrants him flying forward like that. For me, it was actually a breath of fresh air to hear that. Because I've always been such an advocate for a touch doesn't equal a foul. If I brush someone on the leg with my shin pad, it does not warrant their left leg flipping up into the air and then them suddenly collapsing like a sack of potatoes. It's a physical contact sport. You're allowed to put your hands on people, obviously not impede them and foul them. But when you looked at the angle, I'd never saw the actual angle that they showed on the actual analysis. If everyone's not seeing it, they actually showed an angle which was almost from Newcastle United's keeper kind of perspective, but zoomed in so you could see the whole of the goal. And from that angle, you can clearly see, although he has his hands on him, he's not giving him any kind of force to push Gabriel forward. Gabriel almost kind of leaps forward himself to try and hook up a, a header from uh, where the ball's actually coming in from. So from that perspective, I actually really agreed with it. And then obviously the referee clearly said as well it's important it's an important goal for both teams so we need to get it right so are we in a bit of a gray area where although the fans are wanting a quick decision it can't be at the expense of a wrong decision yeah, yeah. that's exactly what 
what I'm saying. Like, I get it right. Don't don't take all this time and get it wrong. Like, the, this is this is where the thing falls apart for me. Of people, usually dinosaurs of the game, asking for time limits on on video. Just don't have video. Just. It's like a ticking time bomb, that isn't it? Imagine they're literally just about to get to the decision, and then the four minutes comes yeah. down. Suddenly, the pressure's done, and we can't make a decision in that yeah, time. It's, it's it's absolutely it's a ridiculous concept of of an idea. I seen today Neil Warnock, seventy six years old or whatever he is, writing in his Sun column the five things he would do, like rules he would introduce about VAR, yeah. and they're just oh, they're, they're the five most stupid things you've ever seen. It's just like you know put a put a time limit stop using slow-mo replays that often make incidents look worse well you need i agree with you that need one slow-mo though to see if somebody got a touch yeah. on the ball like i get what he's saying because yeah. he's looking he's thinking about the romero decision of he kicks the ball then he follows through and he smashes his ankle to pieces but you can't just put a generic rule of it of stop using slow-mo change the offside rule so there must be daylight between an attacking and defending player Day, what what's daylight? Is it is daylight a tiny little? If you can see a glimmer yeah. of light, then he's on side. Like, oh well, he's got his shorts pulled slightly tighter, so there's a tiny bit of a bit of light between his thighs that I can see, and therefore he's offside. Like shut up, man! It's just bizarre, man. They should just bring in the automated offside. In my opinion, it's just the easiest way to clear up majority of these it's qu- sketches it's on the screen. Well. Where yeah, it's ridiculous. I think the only thing that I didn't like about that VAR decision wasn't even the decision itself. It was the way in which they were relaying it back to the crowd in the stadium. Do you remember when at the start they said, checking for a goal line, checking for an offside, checking for a foul. And then it almost brings unnecessary scrutiny on the actual team that are trying to do it and the referee because suddenly the crowd get agitated because they feel like there's an agenda because they're checking every single part forensically. Mikel Arteta's seeing that on the screen and thinking, why on earth are they checking three different decisions? I think that I think that part in itself was one of the reasons why Arteta was so annoyed. Because he probably looked at the screen and thought, why is my team getting completely killed here by the analysis team trying to find something rather than just look at one decision? Mm. So for me, I feel like they need to alter that part a little bit. Yeah, I, th- I think they just tried to be transparent, which which is ultimately it's fine. But what they didn't take into account because it's never happened before, to the best of my my knowledge. But the yeah, maybe in future they should just say, you know, checking goal, and then if it's been two minutes and they've asked for more time repeat it and just say we're still checking the goal we have to get this decision right over the tannoy or something if you want to put over the over the pa system just say we're taking their time because it's there's a lot to look at or something along those lines but i agree that like yeah. nobody won from the situation of we're checking ball out of play we're checking possible foul we're checking offside because arsenal fans were like oh they're just looking for a reason to yeah. so newcastle fans were like we're just looking for a reason to disallow it and Arteta, with his you know temper, is on the touchline, stamping his feet around and saying, "Well, how can that be offside? Uh, and how can that not be out?" When in reality, he's had one look at it in real time, and you've almost got to trust that the, the officials aren't corrupt; they are trying their best. Um, and if the technology is not there, it's not their fault. And a lot of the time, as I keep saying, they're enforcing the rules of the game. If you think a decision is wrong, it's probably the rule of the game that you don't agree with. It's not the referee decision because they enforce the rules that they're quizzed on every season. They have to pass the exams and what have you. 
Right, I think after all that VAR talk, we need a bit of a break because my mouth is dry after going through all that analysis. But just before we do, if you haven't already, please go and give us a rating or a review on whatever listening platform you're on. It massively, massively helps us bring in new listeners and therefore continue running the show for you guys. So thanks again for all your support and we'll see you right after this. Welcome back to Football Social Daily and after talking about one circus we move right on to another as Manchester United, my club, begin the reshuffle of personnel within the board as Jim Ratcliffe is close to his 25% stake agreement with the club. It's now been confirmed this morning that CEO Richard Arnold is leaving the club at the end of December after just one year in the position which he took over from Ed Woodward last year though he has been at the club for around 16 years in various different amounts of positions. So... In my view on this, I think it's an absolutely, totally necessary step in getting the club back on track. I know it's been completely known that nothing will change significantly on the pitch unless everything changes with the culture at the very, very top. And that comes from the CEO. It comes from the owners who are the ones that dictate all of that. I feel like his handling of the Greenwood situation was absolutely appalling. I think he lost so much confidence from a number of members of staff. And I'm not just talking about the C-suite staff. I'm talking about people who were in the training ground, the women's team, even the players. I think he lost so much confidence that there was only one route for him to actually go. And the fact that he was given the reins, yet another banker, given the reins from another banker who was the CEO for 10 years as well, just shows just how inept the Glazers are actually running a football club. On what planet did they think a Deloitte banker could run a billion pound football club at Manchester United successfully? And so for me, it's a massively, massively welcome change. So what do you make of this first step, let's say in Jim Ratcliffe's first shake-up at the club? Obviously, he's not got the controlling share, but is it the right change for United? And is it the right change from Ratcliffe? We all know things have to change at Man United and you have to get football people in the right position. I actually think CEO is one of the more businessy sides of of things um, where, you know, I was looking at Richard Arnold's background is an accountant, accountant and businessman. That is, that is suitable for a CEO role at a football club. However, he's, he's, he makes too many decisions that are related to football. That's, that's where the issue comes and you can't go into you can't go into a business where he's been making these decisions for so long and say, right, you're not making them decisions anymore. Uh, you almost have to just wipe the slate clean. Yeah. And the person who comes in, whoever, if it's a, a like-for-like CEO replacement, he might just be a guy and just a name and a suit, and he does his CEO work of the financial side of Man United, and then you get a director of football in who, who just deals with the football works in relation with the CEO who comes in and says All right, how much have we got for, to spend on X amount of players over the next five years what's our wage budget and that type of thing and then you can start from from scratch type of thing but Man United have been in such a strong position financially for so many years that you could have the wrong guy making the decisions because ultimately it didn't matter because Ferguson was holding everything together and he was he was making final decisions on scouting and buying players and and what have you and youth systems and youth policies and things like that. Whereas in the last ten years we've seen it slowly fall apart. And then over the past of ten the past ten years, you've had businessmen making decisions they should never have been making. 
you know, scouting. I always remember the Wan Bissaka thing of scouting or claiming to have scouted 804 right backs, and you came up with Aaron Wan Bissaka as the best you can buy, <laughs> but completely failed to like notice that he could never cross. He's never put a good cross in in his career. He's fantastic one on one defensively, but a modern day fullback goes forward and back, so you need both. You need like Reese James or Trippier or someone like that. But it is what it is. That's that's just one decision that has backfired and you, you always see this um over the years with Man United. They get fleeced in the transfer market, they pay they pay top whack, they don't scout properly, um, and everything's a bit knee jerk and they, they extend contracts when they shouldn't. I mean it took them six years to get rid of Phil Jones. It took them ages to get rid of longer than that. It's bloody ten yeah. years. Well, six <laughs> years of like try, actively trying to get him out the door. You know what I mean? Yeah. At one point in that time, he signed a contract extension. <laughs> Don't even get Nobody me started on that. Honestly, I just remember Ed Woodward when he signed Schweinsteiger, a Finnish Schweinsteiger, one of my favourites in his prime. But he joined when he was so over the hill, and I never forget the interview he did with MUTV where he said. When players on the other tunnel see Schweinsteiger next to them, that's going to bring some shivers down the spine. Oh, and at the time, I was thinking, Bastian Schweinsteiger, the 34-year-old Bastian Schweinsteiger, who is absolutely finished, has been willingly let go of by Bayern Munich, who don't willingly let go of their best players <laughs> ever, full stop. It was just, I think for me, he became a bit of an egomaniac. I think the power got to his head so much where he forgot, like you just said, he forgot what his actual main role was which was that to stick, I mean, in a commercial sense, he was one of the best. On a football sense, he couldn't tell his left foot from his right foot. He had no clue of how to run the football side of things. And that's why United are about 10 years behind, because it's only now we're suddenly starting to realise and the Glazers are actually accepting we need people in who can show us how to run the football side, which is quite insane yeah, to me. That ties into that thing, though, of, of if you look at a businessman's sort of... Uh, psyche it's almost like I can do this I can do that like the ego is is too much and to ask a businessman who's probably made you know countless fantastic decisions to get to the position where he is where he's worth 5 million and on 250 grand a year or whatever and drives 7 cars and has his fingers in multiple businesses and stuff like that to ask them to admit that they are not the right person to do something I think is quite hard um, to ask them to relinquish control of something that they can, in theory, control is is so hard because they can be like, well, I know football and I've been round and I can ask this guy and whatever. But to actually, you know, it would actually have been a good decision to get a director of football in as a middleman. And, you know, part of running a business is putting, you know, strong people in strong places and putting your getting your ducks in a row and saying right I'll do the I'll do the accounts I'll look after the commercial side of it like getting an official pillow sponsor and an official tyre sponsor to pump in two and a half million and six million a year and you go and sign me a left back because we haven't got one on you go and you go and price up how, how much it would take to get us a defensive midfielder that's going to last more than five years and instead those decisions eventually funnel down and sort of trickled between roles and eventually landed at the feet of Ten Hag and he's went, for God's sake, why do I... Right, okay, we'll get Onana because I've worked with him before and we'll get Amrabat because I've worked with him before and we'll get Casemiro because Real Madrid want rid of him and then nobody's there to put in place. Why did Real Madrid want rid of Casemiro? 
Like they want rid of him because he's 33 and his legs have gone. Yes, he might be good short term, but long term, he's not the man. And we've seen that. I think in the, in the first year, Casemiro was brilliant. And in the last six months, he's looked, he's looked a bit finished. Um, a little bit like Schweinsteiger was when, uh, when he signed in 2015 or whatever it was. So one name that has been touted to replace Richard Arnold is Jean-Claude Blanc. I mean, as far as names go, that's as sexy as they come, to be honest. But a little bit of background on him for anyone who doesn't know him. He was brought in by Juventus as a board member during the worst period in the club's history when they were relegated to Serie B during the Calciopoli scandal, if everyone remembers. I always remember seeing it in the newspaper where it had the whole Juventus team and it had a price tag on every single player's head saying there's a clear-out sale at Juventus and I remember it had like Ibrahimovic, Lillian Turam, Zambrotta, Cannavaro, Ambrosini, like all of these amazing players and I was thinking who are United going to get? I can't wait to see. Guess who we got? Absolutely no one. In 2006 we got, that was one of the worst summers I think I've ever witnessed from United but he was one of the main people involved in renegotiating all the business contracts, improve the financial health of the club. They arrived back into Serie A one year later finished third a year later after that and then they eventually broke even he was the man behind the new stadium project it was the first Italian stadium built after Italian 90 which is almost 20 years later which is insane in itself if you've ever seen Italian so, stadiums you'd <laughs> I mean most of them were you'd built you'd pre, pre-war uh, and are still standing <laughs> It's they're, they're falling apart big time yeah and so that's why he, he just shows just the extent of the job that he's done at Juventus so with all that being said, he seems to be the kind of guy who has been in a difficult situation at a football club before. He knows what it takes to bring a vision to a football club like Juventus. I mean, they were in Serie B, for God's sake. And suddenly, you know, they climbed out of that, became a real powerhouse under uh, Conte and then under Allegri after that. So does he seem like the right fit based on what I've said? He's got, I mean, he's got previous of working at a big club, which I always is. I always think is um, is key. I don't always think that promoting someone from a smaller club, so-called smaller club, is necessarily right because I think it takes a certain type of person with a certain standing in the game to then convince, like I said, the new CEO coming in that he's he knows best. As long as you can convince them and be on the same page, then, then you can work. I think in previous years Juventus have had quite a, a few interesting decisions like the the, the badge um, and improve the sort of uh, commercial side of sort of fashion side of the the club make it a bit sexier for streetwear and things like that I think when they were building the stadium as well they deliberately made it smaller so they could guarantee sellouts every week and sell a greater percentage of um, season tickets to the... It's pretty wise though, isn't it? Because even when you look at some of the bigger stadiums like the San Siro, only on Milan derbies or big Champions League nights do you see it sell out. Yeah. Apart from that, it's pretty much third tier closed, sporadically spaced people. Yeah, you... Whereas Juventus is pretty condensed, like you, you just see said. with Napoli as well. I, I, I sometimes like watching Napoli in the Champions League, and you know you, you do see lots of spattered little seats, and you're like, why can't they sell it out? This this is reigning champions Napoli like the, this is the best Napoli team since Maradona's era it's mental how they can't why are they not selling it out on Champions League night I know it's only Union Berlin but for God's sake it's it's crazy but so he's, he's made a few decisions obviously he's he's qualified to do the job I honestly think just anyone could do better 
at Man United as long as they give they give him trust. It might not work, like, but at least he might make footballing decisions that that on paper at least make sense. So you know anything's better than a businessman because at least he's got some. Like if you look at like Monchi, for example, at Sevilla, he didn't work when he went to Roma. Was yeah, it it didn't work. Whereas Man United at the minute are just you know rocking up to somebody, some club with an an endless pot of money and getting getting the pants pulled down every time. Um, so I think at least with some sort of scouting that this new guy, whoever it may be, if it's Blanc or whoever, can oversee. At least there might be logic to the theory type of thing. And at the minute, it's not. It's like it's chucking a dart, a dart in the dartboard and seeing where it lands at the minute. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the biggest difference when you look at Jean-Claude Blanc compared to Richard Arnold or Ed Woodward is absolute worlds apart. One's a banker and one's a football man. I think that's the clearest difference, but... Time for a short break, but don't go anywhere as we'll be looking at what Aaron Ramsdale's dad has had to say about his son's situation for the 30th time, maybe 40th time. Let's take a look. We'll see you after this. Welcome back. And it isn't the first time Nick Ramsdale has been in the headlines. I think he's a little bit more in the headlines than his son these days. Well, he went on to an Arsenal podcast and said this about his son's situation at the moment, obviously with David Raya pretty much benching him. He says that Aaron has to live with the fact that unless Raya gets a red card or injury, he's not even been told it. The way in which it's been done is wrong in my eyes. Aaron's lost that smile he showed when he was holding onto that ball. We keep saying to him he needs to keep smiling. This is not the first time that Aaron Ramsdale's dad's been quoted on record about his son's situation. What do you make of the situation? Because obviously we've discussed at length of how Arteta's managed this goalkeeper scenario of talking a load of rubbish about how he wishes he could sub goalkeepers on at halftime and he wishes this and he wishes that. Suddenly Raya's been in net for around, I think, eight consecutive games now. Ad Ramsdale cannot get into the team at all and Raya's made some pretty suspect errors during that time. So do you think his dad's quite warranted with what he's had to say? Uh, yeah, I, I think it's it's fair enough saying it, but you've got to have the brain to realise that it's not going to help the situation. It's not going to not going to change anything. And if I was Aaron Ramsdale, I'd be fuming at, at my dad for, for saying that. For going on a podcast at 60, 60 years old, whatever he is, and just talking freely and openly, which is fine in theory. It's not going to help him. It's not going to get... Arteta to give him a chance. He's also revealed something that he shouldn't have revealed, which is that Aaron's now the cup goalkeeper. And even though we assumed that that would be the case, officially all we know is Arteta saying that you know some weeks I might pick David, some some weeks I might pick Aaron. It's it's one of the two type of thing. So we thought it was up in the air. Really, it probably it probably wasn't, but. Still saying that publicly, it undermines the the coach. And if you're undermining your son's coach at the top level of football, where there's still two months to go till the window opens, I think is a bit daft, and I think it's a bit uh, naive from a man who should know better. But if you know Aaron Ramsdale's dad, he's he's not a he's not a usual character, is he? You see him Arsenal documentary, and he's wearing this hat which makes him look like a Russian dictator and I'm just thinking this guy's nuts <laughs> this guy's mental he's living his dream through his son and stuff but just just shut up just 
let him get on with it. Let him fight for his place. And if it, if if January comes and he gets a move, then talk and say, look, we thought he was going to be number one. Then Mikel changed his mind, but not in you know middle of November in an international break where everything's amplified anyway because there's not much uh, not as much news around to to go to go around type of thing. So just daft. Yeah, he's made he's done the perfect timing of doing it during the international break where now it's going to be the absolute focus of everyone's lips. But I know that Mikel Arteta in a recent press conference mentioned that he doesn't think Ramsdale should make any rash calls about his future anytime soon. But the fact that his dad's actually said he's not been told anything, I can believe that because to me, Arteta, I feel like in his mind still thinks he's justified in what he said previously about how he he sees his team having two quality goalkeepers. But as we've looked at in the past, it's never, ever worked at any club anywhere. You look to the Real Madrid situation when they had Kayla Navas and Diabal Courtois, didn't work. You looked at Chelsea when it was Theobald Courtois and Petr Cech, can't, it can't work. Because a goalkeeper wants to play 38 games a season. He wants to be the main guy, he wants to be the main clean sheet, main clean sheet maker, he wants to be the best in the league. How can you be the best in the league and the best in your position when you're playing 20 games a season or you're just a cup competition keeper? It never works. It even happened at Paris Saint-Germain with Donnarumma when he first came in, uh, when Kaylor Navas. It's almost like a bit of a triangle, this. So all he's got to do with Kaylor Navas and Theobald Courtois. But Donnarumma said, I'm not waiting around. You either give me a year or the other guy goes and I come in. So for me, as I mentioned before, I feel like Arteta was pulling the wool over everyone's eyes and I think it's clear as well that his dad has seen right through it. Aaron Ramsdale's seen right through it as well. So I'm, I wonder, because I know Chelsea's situation with Sanchez, let's say, isn't the most secure in terms of I've never been convinced by him at all. Could we see a potential move across London for Ramsdale to Chelsea? Maybe. Um, it depends on Kepa's future, I suppose, because he's... <laughs> I forgot about yeah, him. <laughs> he's, well, he's at Real Madrid at the minute. I think he's injured at the minute, um, but he's only on loan. They're basically waiting for Courtois, as we've mentioned again, to get fit again, and then he's going to displace Kepa, even though Kepa says, I want to play for Real Madrid. And he's immediately binned off Chelsea as soon as his feet touched Spanish soil. He was you know, disrespecting Chelsea, but they're not going to, realistically, they're not going to sign him because Chelsea are going to want at least 40 million on their return, their world record fee of uh, 80 million for Kepa from Bilbao. And yeah, so. That situation's up in the air, so I'd, it depends on that really. But I think Ramsdale's got to start looking. He's got to get he's got to get a decision right, really. I think he's been his poor sod's been relegated twice, <laughs> then got a top move, and then been dropped after a year after not really doing much wrong. I, I do feel a bit sorry for him, but you know this this is this is football, I suppose, and it is it is what it is. And until uh, a manager comes along and genuinely rotates his goalkeeper, which I don't really think happens. I think Brighton's the closest I can think of with, with Steele and Verbruggen at the minute. So either they know the role of I am second choice and I am happy, or I am on the bench and unhappy. So it's one of them decisions where only one survives, really, at the end of the day. Yeah, I'm sure we'll be hearing more from Nick Ramsdale in the next few weeks if the situation remains the same. But that's all we've got time for on Football Social Daily today. If you haven't already, go and like, go follow the podcast on whatever your streaming platform is. If you want to join our Telegram group, the link will be in the description of the podcast. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you again soon. Football Social Daily.
Social Daily is a voice work sport production for the Sports Social Podcast Network.